I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, we're stuck with this guy again this week, man. He's only supposed to be up here like once every couple months. <clears throat> but the reality is uh, Pastor Scott lost his voice. And if you're there on Friday night at the volunteer appreciation night, you could kind of tell that it was going downhill and it just got worse and worse. So um, I got the message last night. Hey, I'm going to need you to preach for me. And I'm like, oh, here we go. So, um, you know, I've never had to do this before. So it's a learning experience for me. Uh, but it's, it's not a surprise, actually, that he's losing his voice. And, you know, I've been struggling with stomach things and back things. And I'm not one to give Satan much credit because the reality is, you know, he's a punk that's going to be defeated by Jesus eventually. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge him. And, and I think he is, uh, you know, attacking us, especially as we get ready for Easter, because we're expecting great things this Easter season. And he wants to get our minds off of that. And he wants to, to distract us. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not only here at Cornerstone, it's around the world that he is attacking Jesus' followers. So before we jump into today, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to ask you guys to, to pray for me, because, again, this isn't my message. Uh, this is an uncomfortable thing for, for me to do, but we're resting on his power. So, um, and, and we're going to pray against spiritual attack leading up to Easter, because, you know, we have Paul coming in. That's exciting. We have cool things, good things happening, and Satan wants to distract us from that. So I'm going to start by just praying for not only Cornerstone, but the churches here in Prescott and around the world. And I'm going to do it on my knees. You guys can can join me if you're able to bow on your knees. If not, just sit right where you are. But I really want to open this time and, and uh, just express our dependence on him, because apart from him, we can do no good things. So if you guys would join me in praying. <clears throat> Lord, just like we sang, the reality is we can't bow low enough when, when we really fix our hearts and our minds on you. I think of Isaiah when he sees you and he just falls down to the ground and, and his face is looking at the dirt because he knows how unworthy he is to even lift his head. But Father, we thank you for the truth of Jesus and the fact that in him we are righteous and in him, we have power. And so we fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus during this season leading up to Easter. We're going to be attacked. Satan's going to use all of his tactics to distract us and to, to f- try to frustrate us and to keep us from being on mission. And so Lord, I pray not only for Scott and not only for myself, uh, but for the other pastors in Prescott and around the world who will be declaring your truths from Scripture, that you would be with them and that you would empower them and speak through them. This isn't about a single church. This is about the universal church, Jesus, that you are building. And we are so honored that we get to play a small part in being used by you in reaching people and pointing them to you. So, Lord, this morning we just admit our need for you. That we can do no good thing apart from you. And we ask that you would show up in a powerful way this morning, Lord, that you would give me the words to speak. might be a little bit rough, but, but that's all right, Lord, because your spirit is, is so much bigger than, than me and my words. I have no wisdom. I have nothing apart from you. So we pray that you would show up <clears throat> this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> it's definitely allergy season, you can tell. I mean, everybody's like carrying tissues around, so don't mind the, uh, the little wipes. It's going to happen a lot, but you know, we have a, a special holiday coming up here in just a few weeks, and for some of you, it's like your favorite holiday. It's April 1st, April Fool's Day. There's some people that love to play jokes on people. And actually, about 30 years ago, there was um, a, a rather large hoax that, that took place um, around this day. And so there was a guy by the name of Joseph Boskin, who was a Boston University professor and pop culture historian. And he was being interviewed by the Associate Press about April Fool's. And there was the interviewer, and his name was Fred Bayless, and he wanted to know how April Fool's even got started. He wanted to know the backstory, the history on it. And Joseph Boskin was pretty much telling the truth. He's like, hey, nobody really knows. But the interviewer kept pressing and kept asking, and he was pretty relentless in trying to squeeze out some information that Boskin might know. And finally, Boskin got to the point where he got kind of annoyed, and he just started making up this story. And so, on the spot, he started talking about Constantine, and back when he ruled Rome. And he said that the jesters had asked and petitioned uh, the emperor to allow just one of their own a chance to rule for one day. And on April 1st, Constantine relented, and a jester named, he nicknamed King Kujul, and, and I guess Kujul is actually a Jewish pudding dish. <laughs> So the, the, this, this King Kujul, this, this jester, took over and proclaimed that on April 1st, there would always be a 24-hour period of silliness. And so Boskin, you know, he, he tried to, uh, to, to make this story so extravagant that the interviewer would catch on and be like, oh, you're just messing with me. But the interviewer thought that he was serious. And so they actually published this story uh, in the newspaper, and, and people started calling Boskin, and they started uh, asking him, hey, t- tell us more about the, the history of April Fool's. And Boskin actually just kept going with it for a few weeks. And so he'd get these phone calls, and he would tell people and just continue to make up this story until one day uh, when he was in class teaching his students, and he went on this rant saying, hey, I actually just kind of made all this stuff up, and, and, and the, the, the media is actually really gullible, and he's, he was teaching them a lesson of how easy it is to fool people. And then one of the students actually wrote in the school paper and kind of outed him, and then the AP had to go back, post a retraction, and they were pretty embarrassed that they didn't do any kind of fact check on this. They just ran it and uh, ended up looking kind of foolish. And then the ironic thing is that that journalist actually went and taught at the same school that Boskin was at, a, journal, a journalism class, and hopefully he was teaching people to not make the same mistake he made. But it's kind of a funny story, and the reason why I tell this story is because it's important to know what we believe. Because the reality is, we are all vulnerable to deception. All of us are. And we see this on Facebook. I see it on Facebook a lot, because I see a lot of reposts, and I look at some of the stuff, and I'm like, did you even fact check that? Like, did you do any history, or did you just, kind of, like, share that immediately thinking that that is absolute truth? We all have this tendency to be deceived. We can all exchange the truth for a lie, <clears throat> and that is the subject for our sermon today, this idea of compromising our core beliefs 
about the gospel. Because we're going to look at a church, Thyatira, and we're going to see how they compromised their beliefs. We've been in this series so far called Overcomers. This is going to be a seven-week series. We're in week four of that series. And we've talked about four, we're going to be on the fourth church. We've talked about three churches so far. The first week we looked at the church in Ephesus, and we talked about uh, losing our hearts. The same way that Ephesus lost their first love. Uh, Week two, we looked at the church in Smyrna, and we talked about giving up during suffering and the importance of endurance and pressing on. Last week, we looked at the church in Pergamum, and we talked about moral compromise. And this week, we're going to be in the church uh, in Thyatira, and we're going to talk about doctrinal compromise. Because just like last week, there was a church that was compromising and tolerating some things that they never should have. So I want to give you some background on this small little city because the the reality is it was actually the smallest city of the seven, but they have the longest letter written to them. So it's kind of a little ironic thing there. But Thyatira is about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum on our route that we're taking through all of these cities. And again, it it was a small city. It was known for its abundant crop and also uh, its purple dye. So this was a very rare thing back then, and uh, for you scholars, this is where Lydia in the book of Acts came from, and and the city was known for uh, manufacturing purple dye, and the city was also very vulnerable, because it didn't have huge walls to protect the city, and so they were vulnerable to military attack, but they were also very vulnerable to spiritual attack, as we're going to see as we dive into this, and So for today, our big idea is that everyone is vulnerable, and if you think you aren't, you're probably being attacked. Everyone's vulnerable, and if you think you're not, you're probably being attacked. I think Scott was a little bit too nice on this. Mine would have been, everyone's vulnerable, and if you're not, you're probably a fool. (laughs) But, But the reality is, we're all vulnerable uh, to, to, to compromise. We're, we're all vulnerable to uh, falling prey to accepting things that aren't true as though they actually are true. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, so you guys can flip there or scroll there as we get ready. And we're going to be looking at five warnings about compromising your beliefs. So five Warnings about compromising your beliefs. And the first one that we discover in Revelation chapter 2 is to never edit Jesus for the sake of your comfort. To never edit Jesus for the sake of your comfort. The verse reads in 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I think most of us, when we, do, when we think about Jesus, we don't describe him like this. We don't talk about the fiery eyes and the feet of bronze. I think most of us uh, pull a Talladega Nights. If you guys have seen this movie, it's a bad movie. Don't go home and watch it. I remember, this is Scott's sermon, not my sermon, so send him the emails. But, <laughs> sorry Scott if you're watching. <laughs> But there's this scene in there where everybody has their own view of what Jesus is. So for one person, he's that eight pound, six ounce baby. For another person, uh, he says, Jesus to me is like the one that wears a a tuxedo t-shirt. You know, he wants them to be a little bit formal, but he also wants them to party. 
Another person is like, Jesus is like a ninja. Another person, Jesus has this epic beard. You know, for some people today, like the, the thing to say is, hey, Jesus is my homeboy. We all have this, this vision that we can paint of Jesus. And so often it falls so short of who he really is. And we paint this vision of him because we want to make him uh, this comfortable image. And, and so often we read in scripture the, the opposite of that. And so we can't edit Jesus for the sake of our comfort. In this passage, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. This really emphasizes his deity. Because so often in Scripture, he's referred to as the Son of Man, which emphasizes his humanity. And both are absolutely 100% true of Jesus. But I think it's important that in this book, as we're talking about end times, as we're talking about the power that he has, he he's emphasizes the Son of God and, and his deity. And then it talks about his eyes being like this, this flame of fire and these bronze uh, boots that he has on. You know, these eyes, <clears throat> later on we're going to see, are the eyes that search the heart and mind of people. And his bronze feet will eventually crush his enemies. This is a very vivid picture of Jesus. And it's something that, as his followers, we have to accept. We can't dumb this down. We can't repaint this to to make it more comfortable. We can't afford to edit Jesus for the sake of our comfort. That's the first warning. The second warning that we read is don't forget that you can do good and still have issues. You can still do really good things and still have issues. Look at what it says in verse 19. Jesus goes on, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Jesus commends them and gives them kudos for all of these really good things. So look, I see the love that you have and the faith that you have. I see the service that you guys are doing and the way that you're persevering through all of this. These are very good things. And he says that the latter are even exceeding the, the former. You, you keep going up and up and up in these good deeds. If we were to put this into a graph, it might look like this. They're going up. And if we contrast them to week one in the church of Ephesus, you know, Ephesus is like the red one going down. They lost their first love. And yet, despite the fact that this church is is doing good things, Jesus still has an issue with them. And and we have to be careful of this and, and take note in our own lives that we can't think that the good we do outweighs the issues in our life. We can't just sweep those things under the rug and say, yeah, but I attend church every week. Or I give faithfully every week. Or I serve in this ministry every week. And yet we have all these areas where we're compromising, where we're tolerating things that we know we shouldn't. And so even though this church is doing really good things, Jesus still has an issue. And their issue is that they're tolerating some heresies in the church. They're tolerating doctrinal compromise. And we see that in just a moment. But we're going to talk about the third warning before we get into their issue. And that is that what is accepted by culture is often rejected by Jesus. Just because the culture accepts something doesn't mean Jesus accepts it. 
and, and the culture that they, that they had in this time is that they were accepting this, this, this teaching of sexual immorality and idol worship. We're going to get there in just a second, but we have to keep in mind that just because the culture accepts it doesn't mean Jesus accepts it. So look at what it says in verse 20. <clears throat> Jesus goes on to say, but I have this against you. So again, kudos for doing these good things, but there's still some issues that I want to address in your church. And here is that, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Talk about an unedited Jesus right there. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Here are some powerful words of Jesus. And he goes back, and he points out uh, about this this lady Jezebel. And more than likely, this wasn't actually her name. Um, I think he's referring back to the Old Testament Jezebel we read about in 1 Kings. This wicked woman who marries Ahab, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 16, says, and, it, <clears throat> and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah, it's like a gigantic wooden pole, um, and, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the other kings of Israel who were before him. Man, how would you like to be remembered like that? And, and, a, and a lot of the reason why he provoked the Lord so much was because of Jezebel introducing him to these false gods and making him worship these false gods. And so here's this, this quote, Jezebel in this church in Thyatira, and Jesus has an issue with her. And there's two primary sins that he has against this woman who's teaching these false doctrines about sexual immorality and about eating food sacrifice to idols. And he calls her out on these things. And it's important to notice that back in the book of Acts, the church leaders came together because they were having disagreements within the church and they were having issues. So they came together and said, hey, we need, we need to kind of uh, talk about the things that are important to our faith. And so they come together and in Acts chapter 15, they decide some things. And it says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And so the leaders come together and they decide, hey, we're going to uh, write and, and tell the other believers to, you don't have to practice the law. So in a sense, you don't have to become a Jew before you become a Christian, but you do need to abstain from some things so that you don't become a stumbling block to those people around you. And so the first one is this idea of being sexually immoral. And then the second one is 
food sacrificed to idols because back then so often um, you would actually partake in the, 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 quote, worship that happened as you were sacrificing that cow to these false uh, gods and then receiving the, the food. So you were partaking in that worship, and Jesus has an issue with it, and so he's addressing it. And the, the church leaders come together, and they say, hey, we've we got to make sure that we make this clear. You have to abstain from these things. And here's this woman in this church who's teaching them, no, it's okay. You don't, you don't have to adhere to that. Because after all, you're saved by grace, right? So it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Because Jesus covered those sins. You don't have to worry about it. It's, it's kind of a, a form of this, this big word, antinomianism. So you can go home and be like, hey, I learned a new word today for some of you who, don't, might, who might not know what this is. But it's, it's, it's an ancient form, or it's, it's really a, a form of this ancient um, Greek thought of dualism. Um, Gnosticism kind of ties in with it, but at its, at its core, it's this idea that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. So antinomianism is, is against the law. That because you've been saved by grace, you can do whatever you want. So it doesn't matter if you're not married. You can have sex with whoever you want. And it doesn't matter if you eat food sacrificed to idols and if you worship all these other idols because Jesus covered your sins. You can live however you want when you're under the grace of God. And that's actually a lie. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. Should we sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And so even though the scriptures teach that this is wrong, here's this lady in the church teaching the people in the church, hey, it's okay, you don't have to worry about it. And Jesus steps in with this letter. He's like, hey, you guys need to address this. I have issues with this lady, and I am going to judge her. And not only her, but her children. And and this is her, her, quote, spiritual offspring. These are the people that she's discipling, that she's deceiving, and who who are deceiving other people. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to deal with these people if you don't. You know, we have, that, that we can really fall prey to this same issue of tolerating false teaching, tolerating false doctrine. And we've talked about tolerating last week, we're going to talk about it again this week, so I want to define it really quick for us. But to, um, tolerance is simply the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular the existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. Now tolerance isn't always a bad thing. If we want this world to work, we have to tolerate each other. Because if we don't, we become like communists. It's totalitarianism. Think like Arab countries right now, who if you don't have the same exact views that I have, I chop your head off. There needs to be some tolerance. However, we have this uh, new tolerance And this is a dangerous thing because what this new tolerance says is that uh, basically I have to validate your opinion even if I know it's not true. So if for you two plus two is five and I know it's actually four, I can tolerate it in the sense of saying, yeah, okay, two plus, okay, you, you know, you can have that, whatever. 
But as soon as you start thinking like, no, you have to believe and you have to validate that my two plus two is five. See, then there starts to become this issue. And the reality is in the church, we can't sit back and just say, well, you can tolerate this false teaching without having any consequences. Like, I'll just let that slide. There has to come a point when we stand up and when we realize, hey, you're tolerating something that is against God's word. It's not our, our opinion. We have to filter it through his word. And if on the other end it comes out as a heresy, as, as doctrinal compromise, we have to say something. We can't just tolerate it. Whether that is sexual immorality, whether that's, I, I mean, I don't know, you worshiping something else, whatever that is, we, we, we as brothers and sisters in Christ have to come to a point where we say, I can't tolerate that anymore. I have to speak up. I have to say something. And really the, the, the kind of the, the mantra that this falls under, uh, if we were to contextualize this and put it into modern day terms, is you do you. Like You just do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do, and we'll be okay. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the peace. But we, we can't have that mantra in the church, especially when it comes to twisting the gospel and twisting the truths of his word. We can't just let you do you if you doing you leads you to error. We should love each other enough to step in and to do some correcting. Ultimately, it's going to be up to that person to, to receive that and to change and to repent. But, but we should say something as believers and, and the, the tendency, I think, that we might have is to be like, yeah, preach it. Tell them how wrong they are. But the reality is, so often we have to look at ourselves. You know, pride looks out the window for the sins of others. Humility looks in the mirror for the sin in myself. Pride looks out the window and says, they need to change. They're doing everything wrong. They don't know what they're doing Humility takes a mirror and says, what do I need to address in my own life? And now this, this, we have to be careful because there is a time where we have to look out the window at other people. Where, where we have to have that accountability and we have to live in that, that community where we can look out the window and say, hey, I think you might be compromising in this area. But if that isn't held in tension with the mirror, then we get ourselves into trouble and that creates an environment for pride and arrogance. So before we go looking out the window, I think we need to look in the mirror and say, what is it in me? Where, where have I compromised? God, where have I taken the truths from your, from your word and twisted them to, to, to make it fit my beliefs a little bit more? And so it's important for us to hold those two in tension, the mirror and the window, because if we don't, again, it, it just leads to judgmentalism and to arrogance and to pride. And it's really hard to point people to Jesus when you have that kind of spirit. So that's the third. Fourth warning that we have in the scriptures is that Jesus isn't in the business of adding burdens. He's not in the business of adding burdens. Verse 24 and 25 we read, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
Jesus called them ultimately, this ties in with last week, to be faithful where they are. Because remember, the temptation that we have as humans is to run from and flee difficult situations. And when things get hard, it's much easier to leave than it is to just address them. And so Jesus isn't telling this church, like, hey, there are some in the church who, who have it right. I want you guys to up and leave and go plant a new church. He doesn't lay that burden on them. He says, hey, hold fast until I come. Remain faithful where you are until I come. And Jesus talks about his light burden in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I don't know about you, but I need that soul rest from Jesus. I love that. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is telling the people in this church, like, look, I'm not trying to lay on you another burden. Because the reality is those people couldn't change the people in the church who were getting it wrong and who were compromising. Yes, they could point it out. Yes, they could lovingly come to them and walk alongside of them. But they don't have the powers in and of themselves to actually change those people. Only Jesus does. And he says, remain faithful where you are until I come. Jesus will address those issues. So don't flee, don't run. Just stay there, remain faithful. Don't worry about another burden being placed on you. That's the fourth. I'm going to skip through some of these for time's sake. The fifth warning that we have is more of an encouragement than it is a warning, but that Jesus is our reward. And this one's, this is powerful. So in verse 26 to 29, we read that the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus starts talking about these rewards, and he says that we will have authority. In the same way that Jesus received authority from the Father, we will receive authority from him to rule and reign his millennial rule. I mean, believers have authority. That's a reward that we get. That's a pretty cool thought to think about. That he will give us this authority, and then he says, I will give you a morning, the, the morning star. And this is Jesus himself. I'm, I, Jesus, I'm going to give you myself. This is the morning star. Not a morning star like Lucifer was referred to in the Old Testament. This is Jesus giving us himself. And it leads to ask the question, what is the reward that you're looking for most? As you sit here today and as you think about heaven, what's the reward that excites you the most? Is it no more pain? Is it streets of gold? Is it that mansion? Is it seeing that loved one? Or is it Jesus? 
Because we talk about heaven a lot, and, and most of what we hear about heaven is, yeah, the streets of gold, the mansion, I can't wait, I'm going to be able to run like I used to, I'm not going to be confined to uh, this disability anymore, and we leave out the most important thing, and it's Jesus. Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you myself. I mean, as you sit here today, would you be content with everything heaven had to offer but if Jesus wasn't there that literally wouldn't be heaven but just for illustration's sake or is your one thought and is your heart fixed on the fact that I'm going to be able to see Jesus face to face and that's what I long for and that's what I want the other things as cool as they are that, that, that's going to be great but the thing that I'm going to treasure and enjoy most is actually seeing Jesus face to face So Jesus reminds us, church, like, hey, I'm going to give you myself, the one who overcomes. So if you're sitting here today and you're in a struggle, you're in the middle, just know that there is coming a day, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, where you're going to see him face to face and everything else is not going to matter. So I hope that encourages you to endure and to press on in whatever kind of situation you might be in right now. Because we can look to this passage, we can be encouraged. Our souls can be refreshed knowing that in the end, our greatest reward is going to be Jesus. That brings great hope and comfort. And now I have to do a quick little segue before we get to our next steps. Because we've been in the book of Revelation for uh, a few weeks now. And this book covers some, um, some strange things that the, the people can, can take out of context and distort and, and mix up. Um, but I just want to give you our stance on some of them, because at, at Cornerstone, we're part of the EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America. That's our denomination. And one of the, the key points about this denomination is um, this statement, really. It's that in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation talks about some heavy stuff. It gets into eschatology, end times, last things. And there are people who hold various views on a lot of what is talked about in this book. And for the majority, not all, but the majority of those, we view them as secondary things. And so we give liberty in those areas. Because the reality is, when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to be like, oh, you can't come in because you didn't guess when I was going to come at the correct date. Or you were, uh, you, you, you were an all-millennial and not a pre-millennial, so I'm sorry, you don't have access in here. That, that's, not the, that, that's not the requirement. So, so that's a secondary issue for us. And so we allow some freedom in there. So we maybe have said some things up on stage where we're like, I don't quite agree with that. And that's okay. There, there's freedom to disagree in those areas. What we tend to focus on is in the essentials. In Jesus Christ. And the essential is that Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for our sin. It's only through him that we have access into heaven for all of eternity with God. He was the only one able to to bear our sin and to pay that debt. And so 
we focus in on the Gospels and the truths there. A lot of the stuff that we've covered is, is kind of secondary issues. So just uh, wanted to throw that out there so that you guys know. If you disagree with some of these things, that's okay. You might hold to a different view about premillennial or all-millennial or post-millennial. Some of you are like, what does that even mean? Don't worry, that's okay. Another sermon for another day. But just know that there, there's a little bit of freedom in that area. We like to call it humble orthodoxy. So we try to remain humble in those areas. We will not compromise on the gospel and the truths that are clearly stated in Scripture. But on some of these things, we, we can scratch our heads and be like, I, I don't know. All I know is that Jesus is coming. When and how, I'm going to leave that up to him. I just know that he's coming. And so I uh, just wanted to throw that in as we get into our next steps here and as my time runs out. I thought this would be a shorter one because we've flown through this, but all right. Um, first one is to embrace the uncomfortable Jesus. Because again, we all have that, that thing in us that wants to paint a very pretty picture of Jesus, a, a comfortable Jesus who loves everyone, who won't, you know, who, 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 who won't judge. And we have to come to the point where we have to read some of these things in Scripture and be like, man, Jesus is maybe a little bit more fierce than I thought. And so I think we need to get to the point where we start embracing the uncomfortableness of Jesus. Because if he agrees with everything that you think, and if he agrees with all of your political views, you've really painted a, a, a picture of what you think Jesus is. Now, I might get some hate email for this one. I don't know if this is from the Spirit or just me being dumb, but, you know, if Jesus were to descend from the ceiling and just pop in for a moment and say, hey, guys, I'm actually a Democrat, and then pop back up. <laughs> See, some of you, hey, I don't know. Maybe I won't say that second service. <laughs> I know where we live. It's Arizona, you know. And, and again, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there, that, that we can paint Jesus into our image and not embrace the fact that maybe he has some things, um, or maybe there's some things about him that, that we got wrong. And, and we need to evaluate our hearts and say, could I be wrong in this area? So embrace the uncomfortable Jesus to scrutinize your life for signs of doctrinal and moral compromise. You know, Scott, th this isn't my illustration. This is Scott's illustration. He talked about um, some of his kids, or one of his kids having lice a little while ago. And the reality is when you have lice, you can't, um, you can't search yourself. You can't scrutinize your own head. You have to hand that pick over to somebody else and say, hey, can, can you flip through this stuff and see if there's any uh, lice in here? And, and the reality is with, with our own faith, we kind of sometimes have to, hand that pick over because so often the, the areas where we compromise are blind spots we can't see them and so it's important for us to live in that community and to have those people in our lives where we can give the pick over and say hey can you start flipping through this and see where i've compromised because we all have those areas there's no point in pretending like we don't it's having those people around us who can lovingly point those areas out and say hey have you thought about this have you really searched your heart in this area? So that's the second one. And then the third one is to ask yourself, is Jesus enough for me? Now I may have like 
botched this whole sermon, but, but this is probably the most important thing that you can ask yourself as you leave here this morning. Is Jesus enough for me? Because if he's not, then during this time of Lent, you can do some soul surgery. And you can do some surrendering. And you can confess those things to God. Say, God, the reality is I'm actually looking more, I'm looking uh, forward to, to, to having my health restored than I am to seeing you. I'm actually looking forward to seeing those streets of gold and all the glimmer and everything that, that's going to be in heaven. And that excites me more than, than seeing you. And this season of Lent can be a time of repentance where you come to him and you acknowledge those things and you surrender them over to him. Say, God, would you change that desire in me? Because I want to desire you above all else. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't, I don't, like, maybe Jesus is just this weird thing. Maybe a friend invited you today. I'm telling you as somebody who spent 18 years of my life far from Jesus, I'm telling you that he is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. And he can be, we, we're getting amens. They're in this room, this room is filled with people who have been changed by the power of Jesus. And the greatest thing that you can do is surrender your life over to him. Is to come before him with a broken heart that realizes, wow, I am separated from you, God, because of my sin. And when you come before him and confess, yes, my sin separates you, but Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. And when you surrender your life to him and choose to follow him, he gives you the power of the Holy Spirit and everything changes. It doesn't make life easier, but everything changes because he is with you. So I'm going to close in prayer before we continue uh, worshiping in our last song. But I encourage you, if you're sitting here today, ask yourself this question. Is Jesus enough for me? That could be the most important question you ever ask yourself. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for being able to crack open your word and learn the truths from it. And God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. And that we would be a people that would genuinely desire you and you alone. That we could say with honest hearts, Jesus, you are enough. And I pray for the person who is sitting here today who maybe has not placed their faith in you. God, that they would leave here today knowing that you are enough. Lord, you search our hearts in our minds. You know what needs to happen in our lives so that we could become more like Jesus. So I pray that you would illuminate in our hearts those areas and that we would surrender them over to you. And Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us and that you would save many people for yourself. As we leave this place today, we'd be more in love with you. And we'd be excited to share about the good news of Jesus with the people that we encounter, not only today, but throughout this week. We love you, and we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.